Welcome to episode 41 of History of the Marine Corps, the Second War of American Independence. I apologize for the long delay. I went down a rabbit hole researching this war, and it took longer than usual. Our last episode put a bow on the Tripolitan War, and we took a look at how the key players handled life after they came home from Dern. We finished up with some stats, and a quick look at how the world started to see United States Marines after this war. This episode gets into the War of 1812. As with all other wars, we'll start by discussing why the United States declared war with Great Britain. We'll get into some politics, policies, the public opinion, and cover what the Marine Corps has been up to after Presley O'Bannon and his Marines left Dern. Thanks for joining. Now let's talk about the history of the Marine Corps. Our last episode closed the chapter on the First Barbary War. The United States didn't see peace for long, and tensions rose again with Great Britain. Multiple nations fought in the War of 1812. The United States and Britain, obviously, but Canada was in this war also, as well as Native Americans. As with all wars, we'll kick this off with some insights into why the war happened. The Marines performed well during this war. They helped repel a couple of British attacks, participated in fantastic naval battles, and helped with the war's first victories. The accuracy by Marine marksmen continued to impress the enemy and earn respect from the United States Armed Forces. But despite the Marines' success, this war wasn't a shining moment for the United States. Many initial goals of the United States never came to fruition and the organization during the beginning of the war was just horrible, which resulted in multiple failed invasion attempts. As the famous saying goes, history is written by the victors. In this case, the problem is that the U.S., Canada, and Great Britain all think they won. Canadians felt that their successful defense against American invaders was considered a victory. Most British citizens of the time didn't even know this war was going on. They were in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars, and the War of 1812 wasn't a blip on most citizens' radar. The United States felt they won because the peace terms that ended the war were those of the status quo. I feel like I need to add a spoiler alert here for the next part, but it's been over 200 years since the war ended. But for my fellow Americans who are listening... I'm here to tell you that the United States did not win the war. The U.S. lost every major battle and many of the smaller ones. We had some humiliating surrenders, attacks that failed to produce intended results, and multiple retreats. Our nation's capital was burnt, Native Americans sided with Britain and massacred many Americans, and our battle deaths were almost double of Britain. The U.S. Army and militia faced multiple challenges during this war. They lost many of them, but the U.S. Navy and the Marine Corps held their own at sea. With all three countries thinking they won the war, the references can be contradictory, depending on who you ask. Records from the British and American military both documented wins, but left out the losses. Some logs exaggerated the power of their enemy, 
to make it look like they overcame higher odds than they did. Sometimes this was intentional, sometimes not. William James was a British military historian and has some important work on the War of 1812. However, in his six-volume Naval History of Great Britain, he clearly has a hatred for Americans. There's no doubt that he's biased, yet you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater, and James has some detailed documentation on the British side of the house that's very accurate. The point I'm trying to make is that I've sourced multiple references as an attempt to keep this as unbiased as possible. I feel confident that I've captured Marine Corps involvement accurately, but if any corrections are needed, don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. I'm more than willing to make corrections if needed. After the Marines left Dern, a lot happened in the Marine Corps before the War of 1812. The strength of the Marine Corps fluctuated often, and a year before the war, the strength was 556, 14 officers and 542 enlisted. On May 8, 1808, the Marine Barracks was officially established at the cost of $5,571.16, which was substantially less than the appropriated $25,000. Marines were sent to New Orleans and participated in battles against Spain. Congress authorized the strength of the Marine Corps to 46 officers and 1,823 enlisted. The period of enlistment changed also from three years to five years, and the Marine Band played for the first inaugural ball held in Washington. While the Marine Corps was maturing as a military branch, tension started to increase with Britain. There were a few events that led to the decision for the United States to go to war with Great Britain. The most significant factor was the impressment of American sailors, but many policies created in Europe had an impact on the United States as well. Britain was currently in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars. A few years after Napoleon seized power in 1799, he began his conquest of Europe. There was a world war going on in 1807. Napoleon couldn't compete with Britain's massive naval force, so he changed tactics and decided to attack Britain's economy. Napoleon issued the Berlin Decree in 1806, which prohibited British goods from being imported into Europe. Initially, this decree was mostly for show. Napoleon didn't have the naval power to defend against Britain's navy, and he could do little if British frigates escorted merchant ships. In response, Britain required all neutral shipping to stop at British ports, acquire a license, and pay a tax before heading out to any other port in Napoleonic Europe. It was a smart move, and this requirement made all goods from neutral nations more expensive than those coming directly from Britain. That included the United States. Any ship that did not comply with this new requirement was subject to seizure. Napoleon responded a month later with the Milan Decree, which stated any ship that obtained a British license or paid the British tax was also subject to seizure. Again, this included the United States. Depending on who you ask, the economic warfare's impact on the United States' decision to go to war is subjective. These new laws would end before the War of 1812 kicked off, so some people think they are not a contributing factor to the decision to go to war. But I disagree. 
It might not have been the main reason, but there's no doubt that this Catch-22 of laws impacted the United States. At the time, the U.S. was the largest neutral merchant in Europe, and while the U.S. was taking a huge hit financially, Britain was trading with Napoleonic Europe. This hypocrisy angered a lot of merchantmen, which in turn angered politicians. As the Napoleonic Wars progressed, the British ministry's leadership was dying off, and Tories were replacing them. The hostility towards the United States grew with Tories in place, and both Jefferson and Madison shared this hostility towards Britain. But the straw that broke the camel's back was Britain's practice of impressment. We touched on impressment way back during Episode 8, The Colonies Go to War, Part 2. Just in case you need a reminder, Great Britain formed the Impress Service, created press gangs, and forced them to serve in the military with little to no notice. Press gangs were used as a form of recruitment by the British. Instead of traditional recruiting methods, the British Army just kidnapped men. The length of service was demanding as well, and most soldiers would serve for life. There were a lucky few that saw enlistment terms end in 21 years. Occasionally, a soldier would be granted dismissal because they were too old, sick, or injured, but that wouldn't happen often. Most men ended up dying or deserting. The response to Europe's economic war, specifically the British actions, differed depending on what side of the political spectrum you fell on. The Federalists believed that Napoleon was a more significant threat, and the United States should side with Great Britain to defeat Napoleon. Federalists believed that if Great Britain lost the war, Napoleon would target the U.S. next. They were also less concerned about impressment. They weren't happy about Great Britain boarding American ships and taking sailors, but they accepted this practice, which they viewed as a requirement during the war. Federalists also felt that the impressment dilemma was overblown, and far more British citizens were serving as United States merchantmen than Americans serving in the British fleet. On the other hand, Republicans had a completely different opinion. They felt that Federalists were too soft on Great Britain, and by continuing to side with them, we would sacrifice the country's honor and independence. These two opposing parties would briefly put aside their arguments and unite during another event leading up to the War of 1812, the Chesapeake Leopard Affair. On June 22, 1807, the American 36-gun frigate Chesapeake was sailing 15 miles southeast of Virginia's Cape Henry. Fifty-four Marines were serving on board the Chesapeake at the time and was made up of two officers, Captain John Hall and First Lieutenant William Anderson, leading 52 enlisted. Over the horizon was a British 50-gun warship, the Leopard. The British captain hailed the Chesapeake and sent a lieutenant with a message. The note demanded the Chesapeake crew mustered and searched for any British deserters. Barron, the American captain, denied any British deserters were on board. He refused the demand and sent the lieutenant back to the Leopard. The British officer returned empty-handed. The captain of the ship was infuriated and within minutes, the Leopard fired three broadsides into the Chesapeake without warning. The broadside killed three men and wounded 18. 
Baron didn't have much of an option at this point. They weren't a match for the leopard, so he struck his colors and surrendered. The lieutenant returned to the Chesapeake, seized four men, and took them back to the British ship. One of the men taken was Jenkin Ratford, and he was a British citizen. He was court-martialed and hanged from the yardarm of a warship in Halifax. But the other three men were Americans. Their initial sentence was to receive 500 lashes, which was later withdrawn. Instead, they were sentenced to jail, where one of them died and the other two stayed for five years. This attack and impressment of Americans caused an uproar in the United States. The escalation of force wasn't justified, and Americans were so furious that if Jefferson declared war, the whole country would have supported him, including the Federalist Party. However, Jefferson decided to avoid a conflict with Great Britain, and with good reason. The United States was not prepared to go to war. The size of our navy didn't come close to the Royal Navy, and the size of our army would do little against Great Britain's forces. The United States was defenseless. Ironically, Jefferson's dilemma of a vulnerable nation was due to his previous decision to cut costs and reduce the size of the armed forces. Jefferson took a more diplomatic route, and he attacked British policies. Americans despised the British practice of impressment. It stood against the spirit of the United States and violated fundamental human rights. However, Britain felt that impressment was necessary for recruitment, especially during the Napoleonic Wars. There was a shortage of men, and impressment was the only way Britain could continue fighting. Men who were impressed into the Royal Navy didn't live a good life. The conditions on board British warships were horrendous. Men frequently deserted, which caused naval strength numbers to decline and resulted in more impressment. These harsh conditions were occasionally discussed in Parliament, but usually they were dismissed without much of a debate. On top of horrible living conditions, class warfare was also standard on board British ships. The upper-class officers often had disdain for the lower-class seamen, and that tension would find its way into punishments. War, coupled with the harsh punishments, caused many men to die. Men had a better chance of living if they deserted than carried out their impressment. The officers knew this, and they would deny shore leave to anyone who they thought would abandon their duty. It was common for men to spend years on a ship without setting foot on land. The food was horrible as well, and after contractors took their share, sailors would only receive 14 of the 16 ounces rationed. But on the other hand, alcohol wasn't restricted. Maybe it was to help cope with the harsh conditions, but a half pint of hard liquor, which was diluted with water, was given every day at noon, and four hours later, men were given a pint of wine. Many sailors saved their alcohol ration and used it as currency, which was probably a smart idea. The punishment for drunkenness was harsh. A standard penalty for intoxication was 48 lashes with a cat of nine tails. To give you an idea of the type of pain that this thing inflicted, one slash would usually bring a man to his knees. Some men would die after only a couple of lashes. The initial lash would break the skin and cause bleeding and bruising. As the punishment continued, 
many people would almost bite their tongue off from the pain. The back was eventually covered in blood, turning black as it dried. It was described as inhuman and looked like roasted meat burnt by scorching fire. On top of the severe and inconsistent punishment, men who served in the Royal Navy received little pay. Seamen hadn't received a raise in pay for over 150 years. Service in the Royal Navy would pay less than British privateers and a lot less than sailors in the U.S. Navy. British sailors still received prize money, however they didn't receive payment until the ship arrived in Britain, which was supposed to prevent desertion. The conditions were so inhumane that sailors were deserting anyways. Impressment was a death sentence, and many men didn't live through service. The men who did survive suffered extensively during their time on the sea. So the decision wasn't hard. Suffer for years with no end in sight and possibly die on board a warship, or go UA, AWOL for my army friends, and risk getting caught. Thousands of men deserted, and many to American ships. During the Napoleonic Wars, the British government estimated that 15 to 20,000 deserted and served on American vessels. That's close to 15% of the Royal Navy force. The British government could have made a lot of changes in the Royal Navy to minimize desertion, but instead, they decided to target American ships. They would force deserted British citizens back into service. Sometimes they would capture American citizens and force them into service as well. From 1793 to the start of the War of 1812, 6,000 U.S. citizens were impressed into the Royal Navy. Some historians put that number as high as 9,000. Low pay, harsh punishments, and men constantly deserting caused a shortage of manpower in the Royal Navy. Yet there was little done to improve the situation. Instead, they just impressed more men, used prisoners, and even visited orphanages to round up children for service. But all this was normal for Great Britain and her citizens. It was hard to argue with the results. While Americans viewed impressment as immoral, the British had naval superiority for decades using these practices. They were also in the middle of a war with Napoleon, so changing the recruiting tactics now wasn't likely. Great Britain felt justified in their decision to continue impressment, and they didn't feel bad about occasionally bringing in an American to serve. The United States could not continue to allow Britain to take its citizens. Doing so would go against the thought of her as a free country. Jefferson despised the idea of impressment, and regardless of Britain's decision, she did not have the justification for removing sailors from ships flying United States colors. Citizenship requirements were a big part of the argument. For Britain, if you were born a British citizen, you were one for the rest of your life. They also had a law that stipulated if you were from another country, and served on board a Royal Navy or merchantman ship for two years, you would automatically become a natural citizen. In the United States, anyone who served as a seaman could become a citizen in five years. Both countries viewed citizens as their own, and they took the action they thought was appropriate for their people. To counter new Britain and French laws, Congress passed the Embargo Act of 1807, that prohibited American ships from trading in all foreign ports. 
This act seems counterintuitive. The United States was the largest merchant fleet outside of Europe, and this new act would cut off a substantial amount of revenue for the United States. Still, Thomas Jefferson believed Great Britain relied on American trade so much that the act would force Britain to stop impressing American citizens. To prepare for retaliation, Congress authorized the construction of 278 gunboats to protect America's coast. Thomas Jefferson had a unique view of gunboats. He believed that frigates provided almost no benefit to the defense of the United States and assumed Britain would just seize them and use them in the Royal Navy. Gunboats were significantly cheaper, easier to build, had the advantage in shallow waters, and were able to retreat quickly. I don't agree with Jefferson's assessment of using a mosquito fleet instead of frigates, and neither did any of the naval officers at the time. We'll get into a few battles with Jefferson's gunboats, but spoiler alert, many of them were useless. As with most decisions related to the country, political parties were split. Federalists were adamantly against the idea of an embargo and believed that this decision would significantly impact the nation's economy. They were right, and a year after the embargo was passed, exports went from $100 million in 1807 to $22 million in 1808. Federalists argued that this embargo would cause more harm than good, and America was feeling the brunt of it. The United States did take a hit financially, but to be fair, she wasn't the only country impacted. Although France and Great Britain didn't change their laws as Jefferson had hoped, this embargo played a role in Britain's depression in 1809. Jefferson didn't think he would have to keep the restriction for this long. The embargo was taking a toll on the nation's economy, and many states asked for support through these hard times. There were even threats of a civil war, but the embargo would stay in place until three days after Jefferson left office. James Madison replaced Jefferson as president. He agreed with Jefferson. He was hesitant to repeal the ban and believed that Britain would have changed its laws if the country waited a little longer. But there wasn't support politically, so he repealed the act. Madison saw the Embargo Act as an opportunity to solve international issues with policy rather than a military force, but the Federalists put a stop to that. Right after Madison took office, the Non-Intercourse Act was implemented, and I'll give it a few seconds for the laughter to die down. This act was similar to the Embargo Act, except it only prohibited trade with Britain and France directly. Again, this law didn't do much. Although Americans couldn't trade with Britain directly, goods would still find their way into the country through neighboring nations. This act did little to stop Great Britain from impressing Americans. In fact, due to American merchant vessels sailing again, impressment went up. The Non-Intercourse Act was active for less than a year. On May 1, 1810, Congress replaced it with another bill that restored trade with the entire world, but they added a caveat that if any country interfered with U.S. neutral trading, the interfering country was placed on the blacklist again. Napoleon said he would remove the Berlin and Milan decrees, although he never would. Madison asked Britain to overturn their law, but they refused, 
since Napoleon never officially rescinded his orders. By the beginning of 1811, tensions between the United States and Great Britain were high. The Royal Navy turned aggressive in their recruiting campaigns and appeared off the coast of New York, seizing American ships. Despite two presidents wanting to stay out of a European conflict, political tactics failed and war with Britain seemed certain. After many conversations, Madison decided that the best move was to declare war with Great Britain. He was hoping a threat of war would convince Britain to negotiate with the United States. On November 4, 1811, James Madison asked Congress to get the country's military ready for war. He asked for 10,000 more men for the army. Congress wholeheartedly agreed with Madison, and on January 11, 1812, they voted 94 to 34 to increase enlistment bounties from $12 to $16 and gave Madison 15,000 men for the army instead of the 10 he asked for. With Congress approving an additional 15,000 men, this puts the strength of the United States Army at 25,000. 25,000 isn't a large army, especially for the United States, but at this time, Jefferson, Madison, and Republicans did not support the idea of a large standing military force. Republicans saw a standing army as a threat to the U.S. Constitution and preferred to rely on state militia. In the militia, men were trained for war, called upon when needed, then went back to their daily life when war was over. This eliminated the threat of career military leaders that can potentially take over the country, which is what was happening in Europe with Napoleon. But the approved authorized strength of the military didn't matter. By June, only 5,000 men were recruited, which brought the army's total to around 12,000. On top of increasing land units, Jefferson also asked Congress to increase the size of the Navy. The initial proposal was for 12 74-gun ships of the line and 20 frigates. But instead of 32 new warships, Congress only authorized 10 frigates. However, the process was slow, and instead of growing the size of the American fleet quickly, Congress approved $600,000 to acquire timber for ships to be built over the next three years. On June 18, 1812, after approval by Congress and a slight increase in military preparedness, Madison signed the legislation formally declaring war on Great Britain. Even though this podcast covered three wars, the War of 1812 was the first time the United States of America declared war on another country. But before the war was declared, Madison developed a strategy that he thought would win the war with Great Britain. Attack Canada Thanks for listening. Next time, we'll take a look at the plan to invade Canada and the result of that effort. If you like what you're hearing, check out historyofthemarinecorps.com. Here you can subscribe to our newsletter, find out more information about each show, and take a look at references used for each episode. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Marine History and on Instagram at History of the Marines. If you're enjoying the podcast, tell a friend. We count on listeners like you to share and any help would be greatly appreciated. If you don't like what you hear, 
please contact us through historyofthemarinecorps.com and let us know why. I'm always looking for ways to improve. Thanks for listening and Semper Fi.